Hey everybody, this is John Namath and you're listening to Talkin' Blues with Mako. So, I know you as a really hard-working man who's on the road all the time. How have you adjusted to this new world? Oh man, I've adjusted beautifully. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Honestly, I, I said to myself back in 2010 that uh, I probably need to take a year off. And, and I remember uh, Elvin Bishop uh, telling me uh, to, uh, to probably, you know, cut the shows back, you know. And, what uh, were you doing around that time? How many shows? Uh, probably about 250 shows. Wow. Yeah, and 10-week uh, tours. And uh, and at that time, I had Bob Welsh in my band playing guitar. He'd uh, cut my Name the Day record and uh, my Love Me Tonight record with me. And, uh, and obviously, I was probably just burning my band out, not realizing I was burning my band out. And uh, the next thing I know, Bob says, Hey, man, I'm going to go work with Elvin Bishop. I can't do these back-to-back 10-week tours all the time. And at the time, I was living in the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco, and uh, I mean, it was super expensive to live there. And, I can imagine. Yeah, and uh, my uh, my first uh, uh, child was born, Ava, and uh, so I was thinking, well, you know, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to step this up, and make sure I make some more money, you know. Load the bank account up so my wife can stop working, so she can she won't take care of our kid. Cause uh, I mean daycare in San Francisco is I mean that's like fifty thousand dollars a year for daycare. Wow. You know, and uh, and they were closing schools down, uh, and uh, and so it was we were in a situation where well, you know, private school. You know all that, and uh, and it was just it was just too much work. And I mean, the fact of the matter is is that um, the blues audiences don't necessarily like to pay, you know, thirty five, forty dollars for a ticket, and that's where inflation has brought us. Right. And um, so. You have to, you have to, you have to win on quantity over over quality of 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 uh, of work. So you know you're playing for you know 150 people, you know at 15 dollars a ticket. You know when it actually should probably be you know 150 people at like 35, 40 dollars a ticket uh, to to really pay the band, you know well. And keep those guys from uh, you know going and working with Steve Miller. <laughs> yeah, and so that's that's where I was at the time, and um, and I uh, I was just you know constantly working, and um, and my wife, and then my wife came to me and said, hey, you know, there's there's just no no way you're gonna be able to to keep this up uh and uh and, and and it was true uh 
And there's no reason to keep it up for the for the amount of money, you know. She said, so, you know, we're going to need to cut our costs back, you know, and so we can... Uh, so we can be in a situation where I can spend more time at home and do less performances and try to get try to get the uh try to get the uh ticket sale prices up and uh said well it's probably not going to happen if we're living here in San Francisco uh so uh we looked at some options uh moving to some places and um I really liked Memphis cuz Memphis was uh uh, a city that's centrally located in the United States, the tours could be shorter. Because if you lived in San Francisco, uh, if you want to try to get out to where the hotbed of the blues is, you have to cover some major real estate to get there. Right. And so, uh, and a lot of clubs were closing in the West. Blues venues were closing. Um, great, great. Um, Gigs that happened on Mondays and Tuesday nights, and uh, in in cities, uh, you know, like uh, Reno and Salt Lake City and places like that, they were shutting down. So you had to drive all the way to San Francisco to the Zoo Bar in Lincoln, Nebraska, to start your tour, you know. And uh, so it was getting difficult. So Memphis turned out to be a great move um, for us, and. Uh, I was able to whittle the amount of shows down from 250 to 150. And that brings us up to here. Now I've got uh, no shows, but that's okay because I really needed to take the time off. I needed that year off that I never took. And especially because last year at this time, I was in Europe and I came down with a strange illness that caused a major inflammation in my system Ooh. and and I, I became crippled and bedridden and it took many many months to to get over it in order to even start walking again so uh, it wasn't until January of this year that I, I really started walking it really wasn't until like just about a month ago to where I was able to go upstairs without any pain and I'm, I'm back to normal and I can go for a jog and all this but I think having the time off and not having to work through any of that because I started going back to work in January and just kind of suffering through it because my wife she stays at home with the kids so I'm still the breadwinner and now that streaming is taking place and it, it's it's been really difficult. So the mailbox money has dwindled, you know, down 90%. Where back in 2010, I had the luxury of having download sales right. and online record sales, um, CD and vinyl and downloads. And, and now that the downloads are gone... And and uh, and eighty uh, percent of the CD sales are gone. Now I'm limited to you know performance uh, uh, fees, so the ticket prices are going to have to go up, or you're going to see very few blues guys on the road anymore. And uh, and the venues can't survive either. Yeah, so that's the scary part too. 
And I think it's just something that has probably been, you know, I, 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 I think it's just kind of in the culture, you know, people had always not paid a lot of money for a blues ticket. And so they're just used to not playing, paying that much money for a blues ticket. And so when all this ends and we all get back to normal, if there are any venues left, people are just going to have to find a compassion in their hearts for these poor devils on the road and, and ante up 30, 40 bucks for a ticket. How do you process all that, all this that's going on? As somebody, I mean, it, it obviously sounds like it came at a, a decent time in your life where you needed the break, but you're going to have to rev it up again and, and get your career back on uh, on the road. Um, how, how do you process just the things that you told me? Well, you know, I think the best way to process this is to is to just process it just like a blues player would process life situations in general. I mean, I believe that uh, when I listen to blues, I always feel the glimmer of hope in all the singers. There's still a lot of strength and there's a lot of passion when they sing the blues. It's not like they're broken. Mm -hmm. and And it's that fight for independence and freedom you know uh, and, and that's really financial freedom too you know I mean Martin Luther King we can't forget that Martin Luther King was fighting for better jobs and equal pay and I think if the if, if there's if there's better jobs and equal pay for everybody then everyone does well if a handful of the few have all the money, you know, and want to hold on to it, then then the blues singer just has to hold on to their hope. But hope's a powerful thing. I mean, if you can look to the future and not let the past bring you down, if you can just keep your eye on the prize, just like if you're a farmer, you know, like I grew up out in Idaho and we farmers everywhere... You know, you couldn't worry about your last crop failing if it did fail. You had to think about the next crop. And life is just kind of like a garden. So, you know, it's a farm and you have to keep keep looking at the future and keep looking at ways to make yourself better. So, every day I practice singing like I would go out and do 150 shows. And um, I didn't necessarily do that or have the energy to do it or really have the need to do it because I was constantly working all the time and my voice was always always right. ready to go. So now I work at my voice. And I mean, I'm singing things that I probably never sang in my life. My voice actually has, in my windbags, my lungs have, have uh, like regenerated to a point where... I mean, they're probably healthier than they've been in in 35 years. Uh, so I have a lot more power. It's a lot easier to do, to sing. And I, uh, and I put on these live streams. Um, every three weeks I do a live stream um, for um, an audience here in my neighborhood. I live in a 
in a classic Memphis neighborhood. It's a porch neighborhood, so everybody has front porches. Right. People sit on the front porch. They listen to the music. And uh, and then we rely on a virtual tip jar, which is fantastic. And I just I, I just I feel so grateful to have such great fans out there that are you know, tipping me and the band, and and uh, and it's and it's it's taking care of the nut. And uh, so that 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 keeps the hope alive for sure. You know. If we go back, um, you talked about your singing. Where did that first start? How does one know that? Did you automatically have a love of singing? How did how did your voice become what it is? I think it, it it's it's automatic love of singing. Um, my my boy was born in 2014, and oh, he just loves to sing. <laughs> he just loves to sing, and I was and and he was just he's just a baby, and I remember I was. Writing this um, sweet soul tune um, called "My Sweet Love," and 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 it's uh, "My Sweet Love, My Sweet Love, Oh my my, Oh my sweet love," and he would sing "Oh my my" just like I sang it over and over and over and over again, and then he heard Joan Jett. Um, and she had that song, I love rock and roll. And he would just sing that. So he's like, he's like one, two years old. And these are the first things that he's doing is he's singing. Yeah. He could say mommy and daddy. Oh my, my. And I love rock and roll. And, and he just loved to sing and he never stopped singing. And it was, it was just like when I was a kid, I just never stopped singing. I just... I love to sing. Anytime I'd hear a melody or something I liked, I picked up on it and I just sang it. And it's, it really is a spirit lifter. I, I understand your dad used to listen to Hungarian folk songs. Oh, yeah. And that's very much in your background. What did you learn from exposure to that kind of material? I learned um, how to um, use emotion. Um the music that he would listen to, there weren't any words to the, he listened to the instrumental music. So it was like, it was like, you know, the Hungarian version of uh, Charlie Parker or Miles Davis. Right. You know, these were like the hippest, baddest dudes, you know, <laughs> playing just like the fastest breakneck speed, you know, complex harmonies and melodies. And then they would chip it down. They they would they would tell a story throughout these songs, and they would jam and they wouldn't break, and but they would slow the time down. And and they would put the emotion on it, so you could feel the joy of love that was new, and you could feel the power of love starting to get old. And you could feel the power of love starting to disappear. And then you could feel the power of, of death. And maybe what caused the death. And you could feel the, the challenge of a rival. Or the power of a chase. In the music. And, and I, that's what I loved about the music. And when I, when I first heard blues... Um, 
I got all those feelings in in blues from the Hungarian folk music. And I asked my father, like, well, how, where, where, where's, where's the lyrics? And he says, oh, the lyrics are just too tough, you know. No, no one really wants to hear the hear the lyrics, you know. <laughs> and uh, and I thought to myself, well, blues, blues doesn't really hide from the lyrics. The blues just states all these human emotions um, and and the struggles of these human emotions and and the hope for what you would like to see a change uh, and uh, so it that was the connection for me and in, in, in with the Hungarian music to the blues what about the singing and when did you know that this is something you wanted to pursue um, you know I guess I always had a dream of being a singer I would like I would sing along to the radio um, and to my uh, brothers and sisters' records. And um, they were 14 and 15 years older than me. And so when I was a kid, they were listening to the pop music that a high school kid would be listening to. And um, and a lot of it was my brother listened to a lot of uh, um, rock and uh, outlaw country, and so I picked up a lot of blues in in that in those styles of music, and since I was young and had a high voice, I could sing with the rock guys. You know, I could I I could sing with the Aerosmiths, and uh, you know, it wasn't anything that you know wasn't you didn't need technique back then when you're a little boy because your voice is high, right? And so, but I always had the dream of singing with the uh, with the uh, with the outlaw country guys. And so then, as I started to get older, by the time I was like a seventh grader, um, I really fell in love with the uh, Waylon and Willie record. Right. And, oh man, just so many classic, beautifully written tunes. Every song's a hit. And so I got into singing those tunes. And I got into singing uh, Queen... And uh, I loved Louis Armstrong, and I loved Frank Sinatra, and um, I loved Bobby Darin, um, Nat King Cole, um, and uh, I always liked interesting groups like uh, Eric Carmen. You know, hmm. uh, I thought he was he was cool. He had the big emotion, power pop kind of stuff that you kind of heard in some of these like Hungarian tunes. I would just sing along with everything and anything um, that was on the radio, and um, but I was always kind of looking for something to get into, and um, when I heard blues, um, it was because I had a friend um, that I sat um, next to, or actually sat in front of me in school, uh, Tom Moore, and he got hip to blues from a guitar teacher. Um, because he wanted to learn blues, and the guitar teacher hipped him to some of the best stuff. And then he went to the uh, library, and he, he a real smart cat, and he dug up all this music at the Boise Public Library, like Blind Blake, 
Fine Lemon Jefferson, Robert Johnson, Muddy Waters, Albert King, Skip James, Blind Boy Fuller, all these Delta guys. And man, those those Delta guys really had the fire and the fury of 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 that. We're talking like thousands of years of of building of music, you mm -hmm. know, of the human emotion. And so the eeriness and the spookiness and the joy and the love and all that. I got into those Delta guys. And and I loved singing along with them and I loved hearing the the country styles. You know, um realizing that like, wow, Hank Williams must have got something from these guys. And and uh and man, I was just the outlaw country guys in general. I could hear the blues even deeper in their bag. And uh and then I got into soul music in high school, Otis Redding, Percy Sledge. And I was singing along with all this stuff. And I'd just be driving around in my car, you know, and, and uh, my father, he made Hungarian moonshine. <laughs> and so we would just drive the back roads in my 64 Comet and sipping on moonshine, listening to records. And I couldn't help myself. I would, I'd be singing loud with the music. And the guitar player, man, he said, hey, man, you're pretty good at singing this stuff. You know, it's like, man, I'm, I'm really getting pretty good at the guitar, you know. Maybe we should try to play some music sometime. And that was it. He noticed that I could do it. And he was really the only one that noticed I could do it. Uh, Did you think you could do it? No. I had no idea. I never recorded myself. I didn't know what I sounded like. I mean, I I honestly had I had no idea. And 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 you know, and culturally speaking too, I had no idea, you know, I wasn't from the South, I wasn't from where the music was born, you know, so I I, I, I didn't know, I thought, you know, that, you know, just listening to these singers sing, I thought there had to be a lot more to, to it to sing this music, you know, than just singing the song. Right. But he had a lot of faith in me, and we put a band together, and... And it was great. The uh, the drummer was on house arrest, so he couldn't go anywhere. And because uh, you know it's hard to tie drummers down, and and so and so we'd go to his place, to his garage, and 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 we would play. We'd play these blues songs in his garage. And uh, and anyways, uh, we 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 did a we we had an opportunity to do a talent show. We got to uh, we got four songs together, and we didn't did a talent show. And man, the place just went nuts. How did you feel? Ah, I felt like a rock star. You know, I mean, here is, here is like, you know, there was like lip syncing and, and, you know, dancing and stuff going on to track music. And we came in and my, my guitar player's guitar teacher um, got a PA system from the music store. And I remember he said, well, it's, well, it's a high school gymnasium. And this guy's an old rocker. And he's like, man, I used to play these all the time. There's only two ways you do it. Either you play under the echo or you play over the echo. <laughs> and so he said, and, and, and so he said, man, we're going to have to play over the echo. And so he said, just crank it up. And we just cranked it up, man. And I mean, 
this is some pretty wild stuff. I was a pretty wild guy back then. And uh, <clears throat> and the crowd's just going crazy. And I, we had this whole show put together, but we never rehearsed it. We just had these ideas to do on the show, and we just jumped in here. And man, at one point, I've got a bull whip. <laughs> And 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 we started uh, we started singing um, uh, "Tush" uh, by uh, by ZZ Top, and uh, and man, we started off with that tune. The crowd just went nuts, you know. I think all these kids, their parents, you know, probably were playing that song, you know. And as a kid, so they knew they heard that music. The kids just went crazy. And I got this bull whip, man. I'm cracking this whip. And the guitar player steps up to take a solo and it hit him right in the head with the bullwhip. <laughs> and he takes three steps behind the curtain, doesn't miss a beat. And he steps back, finishes the solo. There's <laughs> so much adrenaline going, he just shook it right off. Anyways, it was videotaped. And a girl took this videotape to her dad and her dad played it for a friend who owned a bar who was looking for bands. This bar happened to be probably one of the toughest bars in all of Idaho. <laughs> called the, the Grub Steak Saloon in Horseshoe Bend. I mean, just, just if you can imagine, a place called the Grub Steak Saloon in Horseshoe Bend. And, and uh, the, the, uh, the mine shut down and the mill was shutting down and... Everyone was just drinking their sorrows away, and we got this gig at this bar, and man, what a great place to cut your teeth. The guy met with us. He said, I'm going to give you 250 bucks a night. You play five 45-minute sets. Wow. You have to play some Top 40 Country, some Outlaw Country, Credence, Chuck Berry, and then you can play whatever else you want. <laughs> and so whatever else we want, we play blues. We mix the blues in with it all. And they just loved the way the blues mixed in because they all wanted to dance, drink and dance. And they would do like two-step dances and swing dances and, and nasty grinding. And it was a great place to cut my teeth. And I, I learned at that point how to deliver blues in those situations. Can I ask, did you have any access to live blues? No. Like, did you see anybody perform blues at that point? The only people I saw perform live blues were people from Idaho that were real similar, you know, to to me, but um, no one from Ground Zero. I mean, there wasn't at that time people weren't coming in to Idaho from Chicago or Memphis, you know, right. New Orleans or or anywhere like that. But there was a great band called the Chicken Cordon Blues. Yeah. And it was it was a band made as a band made up of um all these uh like these mercenary musicians in town. And uh the rhythm section was like these guys, I think they liked hot tuna. You know, the band Hot right. Tuna. And um and then there was a guy that kind of had a growly voice and would do Albert King kind of stuff. And they had two saxes. I mean, they had a lot going. They played every Monday night in town. And so that was the closest thing to uh, any, like, real blues happening um, in town. And they were they were really good at it. They were really good at it. And, um, and 
you know, I always dreamed of, you know, being as, as good as those guys were and and eventually uh I wound up getting the Monday night gig where they where they played and then it turned into a Tuesday night gig. And then it turned into a Wednesday through Saturday once a month in my in my in my hometown. So I wasn't playing horseshoe bend anymore. I moved to the big city of Boise, my hometown and and I played um like five nights a week, sometimes six, seven, sometimes 14 gigs a week in that town for seven or eight years. And and now, are you thinking, this is what I'm going to do when I grow up? You know, I guess I just never had a plan. Um, I never set any goals to, like, go anywhere or do anything. I, um, it was interesting. I had a lot of, I had, like, I had, like, a lot of fans and people with the newspapers you know that that loved what I did, but I think it was the fact that my parents just hated the music. <laughs> I mean, man, they just hated the music. I don't think my family like you know. I don't know. It. Uh, I didn't get a. It didn't get any encouragement, you know. Um, and I, and I, and and it was weird. I think there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of. Uh, musicians too in town it, it was I think we were seeing his young dogs coming in and and taking uh, some older cats gigs and uh, so it was really interesting situation and so I, I just I, I never thought I was I never thought I had any worth of doing anything really you know greater than just playing some clubs in Boise, Idaho, uh, and uh, it's not like somebody was coming along saying, "Hey, man, let's uh, we're going to give you some money to cut a record," you know. Um, so I just never thought it was going to be much anything. So I just thought I just would keep on enjoying my life, just playing my music, and and uh, I was making a living, and I had cars and houses and things like that. So I thought, "Hey, whatever," you know. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that when you when you're happy playing in Boise, Idaho? How does that? How do you take it to the next step? Or how does that happen when when you're now touring nationally and going to different places? Is that because you moved to San Francisco, or was it something else? Well, um, what happened was uh, uh, the guitar player that had faith in me said, "Hey, we should cut a CD." And I'm like, "Oh man, I don't know," I was, you know. I, I, I didn't think I was worth a CD, you know. Really? It's like, man, you, you know, you're probably worth a CD, you know. Go, you know, maybe get somebody else to sing it or something like that, you know. And he's like, oh no, man, people love you, you know. And I'm like, all right, you know. Um, well, let's try something live. Maybe we can do something live. Um, and so we cut a live record. Uh, I think we did a weekend at uh, there's a club called the Blues Bouquet. That started up, uh, I think, at '95 or something like that. Um, uh, some some guys from all around moved back to Boise. Uh, some musicians, and they started a blues bar. I never played there very much, and I think that was also another reason why I didn't think I was worth, you know, much either. You know, 
Was the blues bar in town, it really wasn't working there. I was working the college bars and places like that. But anyways, we went in there, we got a gig, and and, and we recorded uh, a live to two track. And I don't know, people thought it turned out great, you know. I mean, I, I didn't think much of it. And uh, it got the wind of some people over in Portland, Seattle, and Spokane. It somehow it circulated. And we were getting calls to go open for some bands. And so we went up to Spokane and we opened up for Curtis Salgado and he was super hot and had a uh, had a he had a top 40 hit, a little less a little more love and a little less attitude. And uh, that was big. I mean, he he had a couple thousand people at his show and uh it was it was, it was amazing. And we went went over and we played in Portland at some clubs and Seattle and some clubs. And I, I, you know, I don't know. I didn't think that much of it, really. I guess if I had more confidence, I probably would have pursued it a little more. And then this cat moved to town for a little bit. His name's Scott Cable. And man, the guy was just really awesome blues guitar player. And, uh, but he was a hobbyist. But I mean, he was, and he knew everybody. He knew everybody. I think it's just something, I don't think he wanted to do it as a living, you know. But uh, man, what a player. And he told me that, hey man, Junior Watson, uh, who plays the canned heat's going to be uh, coming through your town. And, uh, you know, man, maybe you should put on a show for him, you know, and maybe open up. And I thought, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> you know, I had a Monday night gig and he was coming through town on a Monday night. So, uh, hey man, you know, I brought him to town, told all my friends, y'all came out, watched him, loved him. Show was great. And uh, a few weeks later, he he uh, had his uh, booking guy call me up, manager, and and uh, asked me if I wanted to go on tour with him. Wow. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'll drop anything and everything, whatever, you know. Um, and, uh, and, and, and at the beginning I didn't think about it, you know, I was like, nah, I don't know, man, you know, I mean, it's like, hey, thanks, you know, but I don't know, you know, I think you're probably not making the wisest move, you know, hiring me, that's what I thought, you know, <laughs> and I asked some of my friends, they're like, oh, you got to do it, so I went out and did it, and I came back a changed person, uh, and I had to, uh, at that point I knew that I had to pursue this at another level, and and um, it was a song. I wrote a song called "Let Me Hold You," and it was the first song that I that I ever really wrote. Um, and uh, and I wrote that song because Paul Delay, who's a great uh, singer, harmonica player from Portland, he cornered me one night um, after I opened a show for him, you know, and he was like, "Hey, man," or he said, "Hey, Bubba." Listen, you can't play the chestnuts the rest of your life. You're going to have to write some music. And you're going to have wow. to get some mailbox money. And it was great advice. And so I was like, well, if Paul DeLay tells me to do something, you know, uh, I'll at least give it a go. You know? I mean... Can I ask you? Yeah. Um, I don't understand how how one can not be confident but get up on stage and sing. <laughs> Yeah, right, right, right. Tell me about that, 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 
confidence, what confidence you had to get up versus the confidence you had to make this a career at that point. I think, you know, um, when you're playing for your friends, you know, your friends just say you're great, right? You know, pats on the back, you know. Yeah. And and you think that they're just doing it because, you know, hey, man, they're good friends, you know, good friends. And, and I'm playing like little honky-tonks and college bars. Uh, never really doing any big major gigs. You know, the, after I opened up those shows for these artists, nothing bigger came out of that. Um, Robert Cray would come to town. I'd open up for him. But nothing came out of anything bigger or better or greater came out of those shows. And so I just figured, well, the market's just telling me that, you know, I'm good enough to play these venues, you know. Right. And I'm successful in these venues, and I'll just stick to that. Um, but I think at the point when I started writing music, that started a development uh, that I didn't realize what was happening. And I liked writing. It was fun for me. When I was a kid, I took piano lessons um, for a few years, and I, I was just, I, I didn't like playing classical music. Um, I guess I didn't like the selection of the pieces. I think the pieces were way too difficult right. for a kid to, I mean, man, you're asking me to, I mean, I got other stuff to do. <laughs> you know, I got basketball, baseball, you know, I got hide and seek, I got all, I got other things to do, right? You know? And uh, but I remember asking the teacher. I said, "Can you just show me how to make my own music too?" And she was really angry. She was just disgusted that I <laughs> asked this. You know, well, how can you write music if you don't know the the music of the masters? And I'm like, "Well, just show me." I tell you what, I know my mom wants me to take piano lessons. And I know you want me to keep on coming back here taking piano lessons. So just show me this now, all right? And so she showed me three chords. A C chord, an F chord, and a G7. And she said, okay, there you go. And she said, like, 80% of all the music ever written is in three chords. And so I, I, I took that, and I always dabbled in it. And so when I, when I went to write a song, I wrote a song in C. And But I picked up a few chords along the way since I was five years old and so I kept on writing music and Junior encouraged me to write more music and so when I got back to Boise I started writing music and I cut a record and I mean it was it was it was, it was strange and it was bizarre um, but people really liked the record and uh, somebody sent it to Blues Review Magazine and a guy reviewed it and the guy was, was just glowing. And I remember Rick Estrin. I met him, uh, the singer for Little Char and the Nightcats. And I met him, and he, and he said, Hey, you know, I uh, really like your music, you know. And uh, so I talked to him on the phone. Um, Bruce Iglauer from Alligator Records came to a show. And, uh, and he didn't like the music. Um... And uh, but, and I told these guys that, and I said, "Listen, 
don't, as an artist, don't ever let rejection uh, kill your your hope. Mm-hmm. And that was that was that was it at that moment. Um, I guess I had been letting rejection um, from people that I valued their opinions so much, you know, especially like parents, you know, cause they're your teachers, you know, so you value their opinions. They'd guided me right, you know, so far. And, uh, they didn't like the music, but I thought, you know, so I thought it was a generational thing. They didn't understand it. Maybe it really wasn't very good, but these guys liked it. And, and so more people were starting to like it. And so at that point, I, I decided to, proceed forward and I asked Junior if he and his band would cut a record with me we cut a record together and boom off to the races I didn't know anything about promoting anything so basically this this music just got out grassroots Uh, did you have an idea I mean to work with Junior Watson you know I mean he is top level guitar yeah. player mm-hmm. did you did you know what you were working with like did you have a sense of the caliber of musicianship that you were dealing with oh yeah oh yeah absolutely okay. as, as a big fan of the music you know um, I had heard him play on lots of records right and, and I was I heard him play on Mark Hummel records and William Clark records Can Heat records um, and I mean really like some of the greatest uh west coast texas blues swing guitar anyone's played mm-hmm. uh, one of the greatest and so and, and he was a cool guy and, and he he didn't really try to teach me anything he just like fed me good influences of music he brought a shoebox on the road of rare uh, music that he he uh he got from i think it was I can't remember. One of the guys from Canned Heat has had one of the largest blues '78 record collections. I think it was Al Wilson or somebody, and okay. so he brought some of these on the road, and we cut these tunes on the record we did together, and we didn't know who wrote the songs. A lot of these songs were tunes that had only been, maybe you know, only a few thousand you know original copies had ever been made. And so there was a hunt to find the publishing and all that. I didn't know much about it, but he was great and he helped me a lot. And and his stamp of approval, you know, sent the music out to a lot of places. And the next thing I know, um, I'm moving to San Francisco. My wife is going to go to uh, fashion design school down there. And uh, I get down there and I start playing the clubs, working with these all these great guitar players down there. Blind Pig Records comes to a show. They sign me up. I get a call to work with Anson Funderburg um, to, uh, to sub for Sam Myers when he had throat cancer. And the, the pivotal point, I think, in my confidence was actually... One show in particular, I was uh, playing the Delta Blues Festival in Greenville, Mississippi. And the crowd response um, to my performance with Anson's band uh, just 
just blew me away. The interaction of the music and 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 the uh, the audience understanding all the double entendres and it was like a the most massive amount of education you could get in the music in one show. And uh, at that point on, I was like, I think. I think I know how to do this on another level. Wow. I, I wonder, I mean, obviously Anson thought enough of you to to um, substitute for Sam Myers. Mm-hmm. But those are big shoes to fill. Yeah. How, did, was that pressure to you or did you just assume that Anson knew what he was doing and therefore you belong there? Oh, no. Like, did you feel pressure? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I feel, I always feel pressure. I mean, even when I would do, you know, do a, a a Monday night gig at a college bar, you know, for, you know, kids just wanted to get loaded and screw, you know. I mean, I felt pressure to deliver, you know, a performance. And it was my job to make sure that uh, liquor and beer was flown and people were having a good time because that's my livelihood. So I did feel pressure and back then, always feel pressure. And I remember he, he gave me a list of like, I think it was 40 songs. And so, man, I got to work. And I learned the best I could these 40 tunes. And the warm-up to the Greenville, Mississippi gig was uh, the Maristar Casino in Vicksburg, Mississippi. No rehearsals. <laughs> no rehearsals. We're just, man, we're just... I flew down to Dallas, and we drove to Vicksburg, and I'm on stage with the band. We did sound check, and boom, here we go. And... Um, it was crazy. It was crazy. The amount, the amount of, uh, the amount of study that I did to learn all those lyrics, and not just to learn the lyrics, but to understand how the song's moving, and how the different verses were maybe about different situations that all add up to the main goal and objective in the song. That's that was the only way I was going to remember all the lyrics. And there was a lot of originals. There were these B.B. King tunes where Sam sang with the hard falsetto, like B.B. King. I'd never done that before, so I learned this hard falsetto. And that was it. When I did that hard falsetto in Greenville, Mississippi, like B.B. King, uh, Anson said, let's start with Sweet Sixteen by B.B. King. I'm like, whoa, we're coming out with a slow blues. Here we go. You know, my first time in front of all these folks, they're expecting somebody else, you know, and uh, the ladies just, they they just flipped out and they, and they loved it. Um, and I think it was, it was, it was familiar to them as part of their heritage, as part of growing up. It was the, the sound of Mississippi and, and, uh. That was a pivotal point in my singing, which opened the door to soul singing and everything else. Uh, because before I was doing Howlin' Wolf and Little Walter, 
Chicago guys, which were not doing the uh, the hollers and right. falsettos. And so at that point, it opened up the door to just about anything uh, vocally. But is that is that still a tricky thing to pursue? I mean, you know, your career right now is b- going down both the soul and and the blues mm-hmm. path. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that ever gets in the way. Like people like Curtis Salgado mm-hmm. have done that. But I mean, is there ever an issue when you go beyond the traditional blues? I think or so. Sh- yeah. I think the soul has opened up as many doors as the traditional blues um, has. Um, I just don't have the... Even though my career started off playing rock blues, uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't my favorite as a vocalist to deliver the music. Uh, I think the putting the rock on the blues changes the uh, changes the delivery and the meaning of the music but that is what is most popular in blues uh, right. rock blues uh, oh that being said I, I I love rock blues um but I, I i I I feel like I love soul and I love I love uh and I love uh blues and I love uh Louisiana music and vocal music where the vocals are like the vocals are the are, are the top right the top thing you know um, that's what's selling the song even though the guitar works terrific on all that it's still the singers selling the song not the guitar right. and so I think as a vocalist I, I've ventured down that path and, and I've kept this mix and it's like guys like Little Milton um, and uh, Magic Sam and uh, and O. V. Wright and uh, these soul blues singers of the uh, of the late fifties and sixties, Junior Wells, um, Albert King. It's these kind of singers, BB King. You know, I mean Ray Charles. You know, I think that's that's what I I, I really like that Junior Parker. Um, it's really fun. It's a lot of fun for me. As far as being successful in the blues, I think if you want to be successful in the blues, uh, you want to you want to rock as much as you can. But uh, I also feel the music is art, and blues wasn't filling stadiums. You know, it was it was juke joint music and small festivals and fish fries and uh and these right. kind of things or maybe you know when you know uh Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee started playing theaters and and things like that so um I like that approach I like that I like that angle I can still take my music to uh to uh a big festival stage and compete with the with the big blues rockers because I started my career off like that and and I know how to deliver the music in that way um but uh yeah to answer your question it it, it really is one of those things where I think if you hyper focus on one group of music and one fan base and you try to own one fan base you know business speaking that's the way to do it 
you know people ask you what are you you know right are you a blues band are you a rock band you know are you a country band you know and then you divvy up the subgenres do you want to just own one subgenre of one thing and hyper focus on that fan base you know cuz those fan bases if you don't if you don't treat them with special care they won't like your music you know it's only the really open minded groups of listeners that can digest a plate full of of different things that maybe don't always fit together at the same time you know but uh, at this point in time your fan base and i presume you have a a loyal fan base yes. who know you as more than blues also soul and and many other things i mean they wouldn't expect you to just do a straight blues album anymore right correct? yeah exactly and i think they're always surprised at the next album you know from album to album it changes some albums have way more blues on them some albums have way more soul on them some albums are real funky soul blues uh, uh, living in uh, living in San Francisco and Oakland I really picked up on the East Bay Grease sound which is real funky soul blues and uh, and so that that piece is always in there too and uh, my fan base yeah they man they're they're great and they're and they're loyal and they're they're a really wide open audience they have a, a, a real wide open palette and um and then I have a lot of fans that like, they come to the shows just to hear certain things that I do, and they put up with the other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you go through this experience with Anson, uh, um, and then you get your confidence. Now, are you comfortable with the idea of being a solo artist, and do you know where you're going? Like, do you have an idea of who you are as a musician at that point? Um. <clears throat> I'm comfortable with who I am as a musician, um, but I'm not exactly sure if the if the masses are comfortable with me as a musician because I haven't really uh, I've treated the music like art more than just entertainment, and so I uh, when I perform I I perform to make myself happy and feel great and and enjoy and love the music and I know that if I put that much joy into it the audience will dig it too but uh, so um, I have the at that point I have the I have that confidence because I know that I love it enough that people recognize that and if you if you sing um, and perform with that much love, it, it, it will be felt. And and uh, then to take it to take it to the other level of things, uh, you know, I'm working on an idiom that's already been developed. So there's fans, fans of blues, and there's fans of soul. Um, and so I'm just I'm I'm building within you know a, a genre but I update it um, content wise to to fit the times right and um, and that's not always that's not always enjoyed and I think 
maybe some folks don't realize what some of the blues songs are really about because back in the day, blues men couldn't exactly say what they wanted to say in the music. But since the music is current, people pick up on the current terms that I use and they get the gist of, of, of the music. And maybe it might be talking about something that they don't support or they don't understand, which is really interesting to me at this time, especially with Black Lives Matter going on and, and folks not being that receptive to this hmm. is terrifically irritating to me. <laughs> I mean, it's such a strange time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I see it, you know, from being in Canada and, and watching American news and seeing just how divided the country is. I don't know how musicians are affected by that, but I presume you are affected by that because I'm sure that there are fans that you have who probably don't agree with your political stance. Right? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, You're right. And you have to be kind of sensitive to that. Or do you? I don't know. Um, I think you have to be, you have to be sensitive to it because I think, um, you know, blues is like a teacher. Um, and I think the music was developed not to turn people away, but to bring people to the music and make them understand the plight of the vocalist or the writer in the song. And so if I write songs about people misbehaving with with guns, I write it in a very conscientious, factual manner. Um, Just the same way as old blues uh, singers would write about guns as well, or Mm -hmm. malaria, you know, uh, or rickets. Or lead in the water, you know. Um, it's it's just it's just bringing awareness to it. But some folks can't handle the awareness. They figure if you're just making somebody aware, then you're taking a hit on their personal stance. Right. And so, um, which irritates me when it comes down to to like Black Lives Matter. Because I think that the 400 years of slavery, despair, and 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 hopelessness, um, and the uh, and the hope brought about with the blues songs. If you don't appreciate that, you have no compassion. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have compassion, you have a long way to go. You have to grow as a person. And so I don't try to alienate my fans that are having issues with these kind of songs. I try to bring them in, just have a conversation with them. You know, um, if they want to message me on on my uh, on my uh, fan pages or my uh, or my website, you know, I'll, I'll reply, you know, and uh, uh because I mean, I grew up. I grew up in a place where I mean, I heard all of that growing up, and I didn't like it. Hmm. I didn't like it. Um, I didn't think it was fair. 
Um, I didn't think people knew what they were talking about. I didn't think they knew anyone, you know, of of color, really, you know, and I, and uh, you know, stereotypes and generalizations, you know, that were going on really irritated me, and uh, and so I'm not going to stop um, writing songs in this manner and. I think when people, when, when, when writers write soul music, you know, there's always this connection of togetherness that isn't just about two people having um, a love relationship in the general speaking of, of cohabitation, of, of like, a, you know, finding a mate, you know, and getting married. Right. It's, it's bigger than that. And it's bigger than that. It's 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 bringing everybody together. It's wanting equality and treatment, uh, uh, of fairness and compassion. And I think sometimes in the you know, in some of the delivery of blues and soul, that gets lost. And I think that is a key element that should never be lost in the music. It's what gives it its legitimacy and its direction and its purpose. And so I don't want to lose fans, but I'm not going to stop bringing up the obvious problems because that's what blues is. Blues is talking about when you don't have money to buy food for your family and you can't pay the rent, and your love is falling apart because you can't provide, you know, for your family. And you got people kicking you around and and you're forced to live, you know, like a second-class citizen. And, hey, you know, in the world, everybody of every walk of life, ethnicity, color sex will feel that in certain ways and if you don't if if you take that out of music you just take it out and when people say there shouldn't be politics in music they don't even understand it mhm you you mentioned the blues a lot and in fact you did actually uh, talk a little bit about soul and the compassion but um a number of times in this conversation you've talked about what blues is and what it represents and to you personally, what does soul represent? Soul rep- to me, soul is actually pretty much blues. Okay. And it's just as times change, things start to change. And there was a point in time where blues was blues had uh, had more of a Saturday night kind of thing about it you know um and uh it was considered the devil's music um because it wasn't born out of christianity um so soul music to me is basically blues with christianity interjected into it and the gospel the bible and so you have this collision course um, happening, um, and and when you have the Bible coming in 
to music, all of a sudden it brings in all these other variations of people that study the Bible in your community. Um, hmm. You know, you got hillbillies read the Bible, right? You know, well, rich people read the Bible, poor people read the Bible. Um, uh, black, white, Asian, Caucasian, you know, I mean, all across the board in the United States. Um, and so when this starts happening, it all starts converging together. And that's when blues moved into more pop, more mainstream, and it kind of started crossing over. Ray Charles and all those great early R&B artists that started putting gospel in with blues. Um, and, and so at that point, um, soul just became a pop, more popular version of blues in my mind. Okay. In the beginning of this conversation, you talked about uh, becoming very ill in Europe mm -hmm. and where you, you, were, you were stuck in bed and in the hospital and whatever. What did that experience teach you? It taught me to take better care of myself. And uh, you, can't, you can't be your best unless you treat yourself good. Um, and, you know, I mean, man, I was in and out of the house trying to be a father and a husband and a band leader and a songwriter and entertainer um, and all of this. And... Growing up, uh, having a still in the basement of my house was not not the best thing for a young man. And so I had a liver that loved alcohol and could take a lot of it. And, um, and grass is a musician's drug. And uh, it's not the same as it used to be. And so, and the food's bad. The food is bad, you know, you, you're on the road, you know, and, and uh, it's not necessarily bad food, it's just not good for you. Mm -hmm. And so every night you're eating, you know, you, you go to these great venues and they want to feed you, you know, the best of what they got. Well, the best of what they got, you know, is loaded with stuff that you shouldn't eat. And living here in Memphis, man, you know, the barbecue and all that, I mean, man. You know, uh, putting sugar on meat, you know, and smoking it. And I grew up in a family where we ate paprika every night because Hungarians love paprika. Yeah. But I tell you what, nobody loves paprika like Memphis. <laughs> when they do those dry rub ribs, I mean, it's just a whole can of paprika on it, and it's just amazing. Uh, so, anyways, uh, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, and there was misdiagnoses of, of what was wrong with me. And so I just got on the internet while I'm laying in bed, and I'm like, well, I'm going to figure out how to fix this some way. They say it's gout, and what it's, it's doesn't, the gout medication doesn't work, which it should always work. And so I got online, and I was just thinking, like, well, what can I do to change? So obviously, I've got something that's happening. And so... 
I got online and I thought, you know, hey, look, I can eat, I can eat all the vegetables I want, and uh, and it's going to take my body into an alkaline state. And so, I went to only eating vegetables, and if I ate protein, it just came from boiling a chicken. And so, I put my body in, I got all the, like a lot of the acidity out, cause, because gout is an acidic thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, I was doing that, but that really wasn't working either. And um, I was losing a lot of weight, and uh, so I thought, well, I'm just going to try to balance it out. I'm going to get a balanced diet going here. And because uh, I read that if your body isn't acidic enough, it can't actually kill the bad bugs in your system. So you're, the vegetables are providing you the, 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 the power to defeat this stuff. But if you don't have the acidity, you won't clear it out. So for the first time in my life, I, I created this balanced diet and was just eating healthy foods. And it started getting better and started getting better. Um, and finally, I got to see a specialist. And this is so, this is so such a terrible thing about the medical industry is that, you know, there's not a lot of love in it. It's just pretty greedy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if they don't make an, if, if it's not a big money situation, they're not going to jump to help you um, when you're going to. Um, a lot of just the common practitioners. If you're going to go in for a surgery, you're going to make a lot of money. They're going to make some money off you. So, man, you're going to get the best of the best. So I finally got into a, uh, a specialist, and by that time, my body had already worked out, worked it out, whatever it was. And so then I just had to get over the crippled side of it. And... That's the point when I had to figure out how I was going to get around, how I was going to walk, walk out the door even, or just get up off the floor if I fell down. That was the challenge, and man, it, if that doesn't really make you grateful for everything that you got, I don't, I don't know what will. And so I just started taking better care of everything, better care of myself, better care of my family, better care of my music, and uh, in, as far as the songwriting goes, it really opened up another level, and I can't really even describe it, um, but it did, and the performances that I did do when I was in severe pain uh, I really had to dig really deep in order to find the energy and power to do that. And in, somewhere in there, it must have changed my DNA somehow because I'm a completely better person than I was before it all happened. Wow. Um, John, I'm going to have to wrap this up, but let me finish by asking you one final question. From that kid who really didn't have confidence in doing this to somebody who's got a number of awards and nominations and who's made a living being a musician, how do you look back on this journey? Uh, you know, it's kind of unusual, but I, uh, 
I always feel I could have done better, you know, uh, and, uh, but, uh, at the same time, I'm definitely satisfied with the performance. I can go back and listen to all my records and think, wow, you know, and I can do that more now than I could before. Um, and, and I appreciate the risks that I took uh, in the music and, and I appreciate the people that work the records more. I just appreciate everything better. I look back at it and I, and, and I think, you know what, That's that, that was really good stuff. And, and I'm going to keep on working to keep getting better at it and, and write more songs and, and better songs. And I just don't think you can stop moving. I mean, I, you know, life is this journey and uh, I feel like I'm still climbing the hill. Great. Thank you so much for doing this. It's, uh, you know, I've seen you play a few times. I've never met you, um, but I really appreciate you taking this time to talk to me. Thank you, Mako. I appreciate you too, man. Thanks for everything and keep on spreading the word. Thanks. You take care. Yeah, man. Bye.